Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. This week we're taking a look at political advertising. How long will it be until artificial intelligence is able to spew out hundreds of messages to thousands of voters in just minutes? Did you know that political advertising in the UK isn't even regulated? What does that mean for our relationship with the truth? Who are the current masters of political advertising? There's all sorts of ways people can advertise, but what really works when it comes to getting people to vote? Or even perhaps, getting people not to vote? We're taking a look at all this and more in this week's episode with Benedict Pringle. Benedict was the founder of the website politicaladvertising.co.uk and works for a big London advertising agency. Benedict, thanks very much for being here. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. Uh, my name's uh, Benedict Pringle, and I'm the founder and author of politicaladvertising.co.uk. Uh, and why do you love adverts? Do you know what? I find there's uh, a psychology to it, which I find fascinating. So uh, how do you get someone to do something with words and pictures? And so this, the psychology of it is fascinating to me. And I guess the creativity of it is also interesting to me and in the pringle household when you were younger were you somebody who used to insist the family watched all the adverts rather than fast forwarding through them well my dad is an ad man so uh we were constantly talking about adverts growing up so yeah i've always had a fascination uh, with them and as a family with a real rare one where we would sit around and discuss the adverts as much as anything else Uh, and do you have any family favorites Ah, oh, well, if I look back as when, to when I was a kid, it's probably things like the Honey Monster and Frosty the Tiger and those sort of classic uh, cereal adverts. Um, but when, then when I was kind of growing up, I was obsessed with sports, so I loved all the sort of Adidas and Nike ones. Um, and now I'm quite into <laughs> an old man. I'm quite into my whiskey ads, so I can always appreciate a good whiskey ad now. What's different about political adverts to to normal adverts? The difference between political adverts and normal adverts is political adverts are typically working towards a single point in time where you either win or you lose. Uh, And that is not the case with uh, corporate advertising or business advertising where you are very often playing a longer game. Yes, you're trying to turn around a result uh, in the short term, but you would never do that at the expense of a long term um, sort of thing. 
and and that is one of the major differences and that main difference means that the strategies and tactics used by political groups differs quite strongly from businesses so you talk about political advertising as being grubby yeah is it grubby well i i talk about it being the grubbiest part of the dirtiest business so the dirtiest uh business is politics obviously uh and and the grubbiest part is the political advertising um and that's sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek people in people don't tend to say that they love adverts and i think back in the day sort of pre the the mad men series lots of people would look at advertising as a trade not in the same light as being a doctor or a dentist or something like that so i think in the industry people sort of have a have a joke about how we're perceived uh, and i think that's quite similar in politics everyone who works in politics thinks that everyone who doesn't work in politics hates politics uh so it's a bit of a joke on the fact that i work in a, a, a fairly unpopular industry and my fascination is with an even less popular one um and i do think it's true that some people uh really really dislike political advertising david ogilvy who is a father of modern advertising said it's the only type of advertising he believed should be banned um and i think the reason why people dislike it is because i think people believe that politics and voting in a certain way should be based on a rational evaluation of policies and doing what's best for their family or the nation or whatever. And I think that they don't like the idea that an advert could change someone's mind about which way they're going to vote. So they are either disparaging of it. Most people I speak to in politics are disparaging about political advertising uh, or they resent it because they understand that it works, but they find it frustrating that it does. Uh, so I think that the the haters of political advertising are are many, uh, but um, I I don't subscribe to, to any of those sorts of things. I actually think it's uh, it's very often the most honest part of politics. On a forty eight sheet poster, uh, there's no room for bluff or you know caveats or anything like that you've just got to say what you want to say that you think is going to be the most persuasive reason why someone should vote for you and i think sometimes the honesty or the truthfulness of political advertising is where the power comes from and it's it's so on the nose that um that's i think that's why there is a certain sort of romanticism around it the, the media love them because of that i think because of the truthfulness uh, that the, all the, the the best ones communicate. So, uh, taking a recent example that was emblazoned all over the side of a bus, uh, is that a bit grubby? You know, using using emotive facts and facts that people would dispute, um, not necessarily right or wrong, but people would dispute them. That feels to me kind of uh, very very emotionally, potentially manipulative. So I, I agree, and I, I think using the 350 million figure was a despicable thing to do. I think if you look at the uh, the select committee where the two uh, people running the Leave campaign, um, Dominic, what's his name? Uh, can't remember. Anyway, uh, 
the the two people running the campaign uh, knew clearly that it was not true. Uh, and I think that is not a good place to be. And I'm a huge advocate of pre-clearance of factual claims when used in political advertising. That's what happens in normal, in inverted commas, advertising. You have to pre-clear um, any claims that you would use in TV ads. But I think there is interesting in something where I think if you spoke to a Leave voter, they would say, yeah, of course, everyone knew that the 350 million claim wasn't true. But it spoke to a truth, which is the UK sends a lot of money to the European Union and that money could possibly be used elsewhere. So I guess that's where you get into this whole post-truth thing where if something feels true, then it is. And I, and I, that's sort of not a specialist topic of mine particularly. Um, but yeah, it, I thought that was a really interesting case in point so no I, and I, I I think lots of um, the advertising industry would agree I think when political advertising um, makes false claims because it's totally unregulated there is no regulation of political advertising and it actually gives normal advertising a bad name because people think oh if the political people can say that then the rest of advertising must be full of uh, mistruths as well and actually that's not the case so we're talking in a week when uh, a new Brexit bus has been unveiled. Uh, but my favourite one actually was the uh, somebody had printed David Davis's, they'd probably photoshopped it, David Davis's This Will Not End in a Mad Max style dystopia on the side of a red bus, uh, which felt to me like a fairly good summary of where we're up to with Brexit. But before we go too far down the uh, the ever-present Brexit wormhole, I just want to ask whether technology has changed the way that political adverts have been composed and distributed in recent years. Hugely. I mean, the the biggest change that has happened in political advertising is that up until social networks were born in, let's say, 2004, political advertising was curtailed pretty much to political parties or fairly major political actors like trade unions and it was those organizations who would then make advertising and communicate it to the electorate in billboards, direct mail, you know, not much else really. Uh, and then social media came along and there is many more direct channels between political actors and voters on the one thing. And then on the other hand, you have a whole new load of groups who can also make political advertising and get that seen by voters in, in large numbers. So I would say that is the biggest change, is that it's gone from a big organisations to the many, to everyone, to everyone. And relatively, you know, people with not much money can have a huge impact on the narrative of elections these days. I mean... If you think back to Abby Tomlinson, who founded Millie Fandom, you know, she was quite literally a young girl in her bedroom and she managed to drive the news agenda and maybe helped make Ed Miliband seem more, more like he's seen now, more of a sort of normal, normal bloke. Uh, and you just, you, you, you never had that before. So that is the major um, difference, which has made, you know, writing a website about, political advertising i think if i'd have tried to do this pre social media it would have been pretty sparse uh but now that you know you're you're spoiled for content so many people churning it out 
all the time. So that's the major difference. I mean, and then the other big differences that have uh, come along is the the number of different ways in which you can use political advertising. So, and you can do that because of the accuracy of the targeting that you can use. So again, back in the day, you would run a billboard poster in a marginal constituency in the hope of getting undecided voters in that constituency to vote one way or the other. Now, because you can be so much more targeted using digital media, you can use your advertising to speak to people who really, really like you and get them to donate money. You can speak to people who quite like you and try and get them to really like you and get them to go out and knock on doors for you. You can speak to people who hate you and you can try and convince them to stay at home. That's what we saw in America a lot of. And, and that's what a lot of negative advertising is, getting people who you know are not going to vote for you to not vote at all. Um, and you can use political advertising to just annoy the hell out of opposition supporters or depress the hell out of them. The more opposition supporters who stay on the sofa as opposed to go out door knocking, that's a win in campaigning terms. So you've gone from having a very one-dimensional approach to using advertising to being able to use it to further all sorts of political campaign um, objectives. So who are the masters of this multi-dimensional possibilities of modern political advertising? In the UK, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party do it pretty well. I think where commentators, political commentators and advertising trade press get it really wrong is they will look at a, a graphic that the Conservative Party have put on Twitter and they go, you know, what kind of swing voter is going to be on Twitter and be persuaded by that? And it's like, of course, that is not the point of that ad. <laughs> the point of that ad is to either get journalists to write something a certain way or to get their supporters G'd up. And I think political parties are pretty sophisticated about what they are doing and why they're doing it. Um, so I, I think we're pretty advanced here in the UK. I think in the States, it's even more so. Um but it's, it's actually not very well understood because why would anyone go out and give the detail on why they're doing things? And is it just political parties? I mean, but you think of the kind of classic party political broadcast and parties being the people who do political advertising, but presumably there are kind of non-political parties involved as well. Well, this is the, the a, a really new advent is what in the UK is called uh, non-party campaign groups, but in the US is called PACs or super PACs. So these are organisations who are not political parties, but whose objective is still to influence the way in which someone votes. Um, and again, non-party campaign groups, uh, well, they've grown hugely uh, in the last I mean, certainly in 2017, 2015, general elections in the Brexit referendum, very, very active indeed. Um, and they are totally enabled by the fact that they can raise money online using programs like you know, or, or, or platforms like Crowdpack or GoFundMe or whatever it is. They can raise the money, they can meet supporters and then they can distribute their communication messages. All of that was just not possible before social media and digital media. Um, and they are beginning to, these non-party campaign groups are beginning to have an impact on elections in very tangible ways. If you look at the 2017 general election, I counted, I think 34 non-party campaign groups that were 
either anti-conservative or pro-Labour and only one who was pro-conservative. And they're all spending money, they're all knocking on doors and, you know, that, that's that got to count for something. And I think, and I, and I know having spoken to strategists on the conservative side, uh, they saw that in the Labour campaign and they go, okay, next time round, that's not going to be the case. And so we've seen these groups spring up on the Labour side. Obviously, Momentum is a very famous one, um, but the conservative sort of ranks have started setting up similar things. There's one called Activate UK, which is, you know, much parodied, but, but it's still there and it's still going. And it, if they can start to get their act together by the next time the general election come, comes around, I'm sure they'll be doing some interesting stuff. And I suspect if you're cast your eyes forward to uh, London 2020, say, is there going to be, a, you know, black taxi drivers for the Conservative Party? group who are going to be doing the sorts of advertising that the Conservative Party, the official main brand, would never touch because it's too aggressive or it uses talking points which are a bit, you know, shady. They might get blowback on themselves, but they'll be very, very happy for these uh, subgroups to to sort of, you know, muddy the water themselves. It's like in the general election 2017, everyone talked about what a great positive campaign Jeremy Corbyn and Labour ran. And that is true to an extent. And the reason why they could is because they had all these other organisations, you know, sending showers of SH apostrophe T uh, down on uh, on the Tory ranks. So, uh, yeah, Labour's and Corbyn's campaign was relatively positive. But that wasn't to say there wasn't a lot of negative sentiment being pumped out by these non-party campaign groups. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And one of the things that recent elections have, have done is kind of been unpredictable. Mm. Um, although people increasingly like to claim that they predicted them. Uh, and there's a sense that there's a bit more volatility. There's a bit more kind of a hardening of emotion. People feel more, feel things more strongly. Mm. Um, 
are we seeing more volatile elections? And if we are, does that mean that adverti- is advertising causing that or is advertising reacting to that? I think we definitely are seeing more volatile elections. Um, as you say, n- no one, as far as I can tell, has called all of the big uh, elections right. None of the pollsters either. Um, and the symptoms of volatility are showing in not just the unpredictability of the outcome, uh, but they are also showing in terms of numbers of people turning out, you know, sometimes very high turnout, sometimes very low. That is a symptom of uh, of volatility. Um, you're seeing people switching from long held um, sort of support. Like, so in Scotland, for example, suddenly the Conservative Party is relatively popular. You know, they're in second place. That wouldn't have been true five years ago or or even less than that. So people are switching parties much more frequently than they ever have done before. I think 2015 and 2017, we saw the most change between parties. So people changing which way they vote compared to the previous election than we had done for a century or something like that. It's people really um, not sticking to the same party, people voting or not voting in fairly unpredictable ways. Um, so yeah, volatility is here. It looks like it's here to stay. Is advertising a cause or even a symptom of that? I'm not sure. I think it's more about, um, I think it's more about people feeling less affinity to the old things that used to drive loyalty to parties and propensity to turn out and vote. So you know, the Labour Party were founded to look after essentially a working class group of people in certain areas of the country often. And the Conservative Party were founded to look after the landed class. And now those people don't feel those divisions as much as they did. And so they don't feel as tightly connected to the parties. uh, And they're actually feeling more connected to the things that make up other facets of their identity. So whether it's... um, you know, whether or not they went to university or um, whether or not they listened to a particular type of music or people's identity is much more likely to have an impact on which way they're going to vote than how much money they make or, um, or or what type of job that they work in. So the, the things that predict which way you're going to vote are changing. And I think that is also making things more volatile for a, someone who's interested in trying to predict what elections are going to be. So that's a really interesting point because on in our last episode, um, I spent some time with Cameron talking about the US election and uh, the ability of organisations to identify 5,000 data points on any given individual. There are a lot of data points available on people, but what you're saying, what, if, what you're saying is, is that the data would, you would use to indicate which way people would vote is shifting. Absolutely. So I came away from the last episode thinking... For a long time, it's been an art to read the public mood. And actually, it feels like perhaps there are some people who have now turned that literally into a science. Absolutely. And and that's what, just to pick an example, that's what Emmanuel Macron did very well in France. He conducted a massive survey. He just, him and his team went out and surveyed what people's names were, where do they live, what wine do they like to drink all these different data points and then crucially which way are they planning on voting and who do they sympathize with and then using data they are able to pick out things that correlate and so you you might you sometimes find these crazy examples where 
people who like drinking Malbec and watching The Simpsons are are likely to be the people who are going to be warm to voting for you. And so suddenly you're using all the different channels you can to get to the people who like drinking Malbec and watching The Simpsons. So the the things that make people likely to vote in a certain way are changing. That doesn't mean you can't predict them, but they are not class and, uh, you know, income like they used to be. And another factor of the conversation last week, which is still kicking around in my head, is that I felt that the received wisdom is you target the centre ground with moderate messages. And Macron managed to do that because he was a moderate candidate. Uh, Trump definitely didn't do that. So what's the difference? Because Trump was a big kind of outlandish, sent some really strong pull, kind of pull factor messages. Um, Whereas Macron seems to take a more moderate approach. Now, if they're both using data, why did they both end up taking such different approaches? So I would say uh, in... Well, Trump's election was very similar in some, and people will hate the idea of this, but very similar in some ways to Obama's campaign in the years before, and was very similar in some ways to Corbyn's in 2017, where they all took a strategy of trying to expand the electorate. So they're trying to get people who don't usually vote to come out and vote. Um, and that has a very particular set of tactics and, and, and strategies to, to try and do that. Um, in the case of Macron, I mean, he was in some ways quite fortunate in the sense that his big rival, Fionn, uh, had a massive scandal about, you know, misuse of public money and all that kind of thing. And so uh, Macron had a huge group of people he could appeal to in his support, people who would have supported him. And then on the other side of it, there was no centre left candidate and there was a very hard right candidate. So in terms of in any campaign, you need to try and find out who are the people, or who are the groups of people who are going to get you over the line. In Trump's case, he would have known there is no way he's going to be able to pick up enough wavering Democrat Republicans to be able to get him over the line. So his only option was to expand his um, expand his, his voter base. In Macron's case, he knew that if he could flip enough people who would have voted centre-left or centre-right into his camp then he's going to win. So that, that I mean, electoral strategy is so incredibly simple. <laughs> People, uh, you know, tie themselves in knots over it, but it's it really is simple. Find the group of people who you think can get you to the number of votes or seats in order to win, uh, and then try and find the most appropriate set of policies and messages to get them to vote for you. It's, it really is as simple as that. It, then it's very hard to execute, but the, the strategy is very simple. And so looking ahead to 2018, which elections are kind of, what are you keeping an eye on? Ah, uh, 2018. So what have we got? We've got um, obviously the local elections um, here in uh, here in the UK. And I, I think that will be a really interesting test of how Corbyn's getting on. Um, there's also a, a referendum taking place in Ireland on uh, abortion which is a fascinating one. Uh, and I, I think there'll be emotions running high on, on both sides. So I'll be watching uh, that one closely. Um, what other ones have we got? I can throw a couple in for Go you. On. Sierra Leone and Zimbabwe, which actually both of them might pr- prove interesting test cases because there's an increasingly lively social media conversation 
um, that takes place around elections in West, East and Southern Africa. So um, don't completely dismiss those as giving something for people to learn from. Yeah, no, totally. And, and if you look at um, Kenya's election last year, uh, you know, I know you covered this on a previous show, but uh, guess what name popped up? Cambridge Analytica. They were the agency who were running the incumbents campaign over there. So um, just because it's in a, a, a relatively, from us, from our perspective, far-flung part of the world, that doesn't mean that they're not using very interesting um, strategies, technology, tactics. And what about the use of technology in 2018? So Narendra Modi beamed himself into various public squares across India, which was a canny move. Um, we know that virtual reality or augmented reality are supposed to be able to engender new emotion and compassion in people. Do you think we'll start to see new tech creep into political messaging? Well, in in, uh, in France, again, Mélenchon, who was the, the, the left-wing candidate in that election, he did a similar trick where he uh, hologrammed himself all around the country. I suspect we will see some of that uh, coming to the to the UK soon, um, but in terms of the technology that I think is really nascent but interesting and also a bit scary is the use of um, artificial intelligence to create advertising. So for some time we have had artificial intelligence which um, can predict, you know, who the advert should be served to. Um, and at what cost and things like that. So just almost getting the, getting the message out there. But so far, we haven't had artificial intelligence actually changing the creative. But we're not far off being able to do that. So it's interesting, the moral implications of an ad which an artificial intelligence robot machine has chosen the headline, has chosen the picture, um, and pu pushed it out there, probably with very little... Um, involvement of a human it seems like there's a bit of a democratic deficit going on there where the political party or the candidate aren't necessarily in charge of the message which they may be elected on it's not long before you go do you know what that's going to be really time consuming and really expensive wouldn't it be better to get an AI to work out which messages are going to be most appropriate and, and serve them for us now whether they are Cambridge Analytica and companies like that are already doing that or whether that's in um, in the pipeline uh, remains to be seen. But I, I can imagine that they are working on it if they're not using it already. And but they, we we hopefully won't see the end of the uh, of the battle bus either. No, well I think what's so nice about politics is because there is still a really big earned media aspect to uh, to political coverage. So you need to get journalists to write about you something about standing in front of a big bus with <laughs> with lettering emblazoned on it uh, gets journalists all in a flutter and and it's the same as standing in front of a big billboard journalists just love it it's easy coverage for them you know journalists love writing about division uh, and so if you've got someone standing in front of something saying something provocative um, it's the perfect news story so yeah I, I don't think we've seen the end of posters i don't think we've seen the end of battle buses as long as there's earned media, uh, I think we'll see sort of stunts like that for sure. You touched on earlier on the kind of lack of regulation in political advertising, and that's something that um, there's a lack of regulation in a lot of the areas that we've covered on this podcast. Do you, can you, you know, is there absolutely none? Can you say what you want? Could you bareface lie and and then it's up to the electorate to decide whether that is something you should be punished for? Yeah, absolutely. So there is no regulation in political advertising, and that's what. Uh, 
to, to your point about let the public decide that is kind of what we've got in the in the uk at the moment um that was kind of okay i mean it's not great but it was kind of okay when people were doing party election broadcasts and posters and then if there was a or, or battle buses and if there was a factual inaccuracy journalists would say hey that's not true and you know the public would eventually realize that one of the parties was lying or being liberal with the truth and that might have electoral consequences in a world where most of the political advertising is done via digital media and uh, it's not always clear who is seeing that and in a world where maybe there is an artificial intelligence who's generating some of those um, messages um, that just can't be allowed to happen where you're just relying on journalists publicizing the bad stuff because the journalists aren't going to see it necessarily. So what can you do to stop that? Well, this is one of the upshots of um, the whole Russia meddling in the US elections and running a load of advertising is that Facebook and Twitter have been put under um, huge pressure to do something about this. And so Facebook have made a new policy where um, it used to be that you could run ads on your Facebook page and uh, only the people who are intended to see them can see them. Facebook are going to change that. So if you or I went onto a political party's Facebook page, we'd be able to click and say view ads and see all the different ads that they're running. So say if they're running a thousand different ads, a journalist will be able to go on and click and see and see all the different messages. Um, but that still hasn't come into uh, into it hasn't come to fruition yet um even in the states and that's self-regulation as well that's something that facebook are kind of i'd say proactively they're probably reactively doing it yeah. but nonetheless they're doing it um is there a role for bodies like the electoral commission i mean i i think in the in the uk um i think that is a major move having facebook doing stuff like that and also twitter um i still think there is a role to be played for factual claims because in a world where you can just say something dressed up as fact and then it gets repeated, you know, a million times the next day and, and then, you know, even if it is withdrawn after that, um, the damage is often done. Uh, I think political parties should have to pre-clear these claims in order to stop all this sort of fake news business doing the rounds. And let's assume that the regulation is not in place at the moment and you were dishing out some advice to a budding political advertiser what would be the kind of top top tips you'd give them if they're thinking about making their own political adverts so i would say first of all make sure you know why you're doing it so pick the objective is it to get undecided voters to you know flip one way or the other or is it to get people who are deciding whether or not they're going to vote at all to get off the couch and vote so being clear on the objective is probably the most important thing because that sets the tone for everything else that you'll do the other thing I would say is in politics, there is so much different stimuli for the for nudging people one way or the other about how they're going to vote. So their mate at work might say something to them or um, they might see something on the TV. The idea that you can, in a single political advert, seed a new idea and have it change someone's mind about what they're going to do is, I think, very unlikely. But what political advertising is very effective at doing is um, cementing in the mind something or a notion that they have already had. So um, a classic one is in the 2015 general election, you had that great poster of Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's pocket. 
now, I think some people would have had the notion that, okay, maybe there's going to be a hung parliament at this election and do I want Ed Miliband to be in charge of that? And some people might have had the notion that Ed Miliband looks like a bit of a weak leader. Um, and in that poster, they managed to combine both of those two sort of fears uh, in a brilliant and evocative piece of creative. So I would say try and find an issue in which people already have a perspective on and try and bring that to life in the most dramatic way you can. And my last question is just to ask, uh, where have you seen the most effective communication? What's, so what attributes, you work in the ad industry, so what attributes, in your opinion, do the most effective communicators possess? I think the best communicators tell stories brilliantly well uh, and all stories have a plot they have characters and they have conflict and I think if you look back to David Cameron and George Osborne's time in office they were just constantly telling the same story you know there's a the economy is under threat like never before we don't have the money to sustain ourselves uh, we need a long-term economic plan to get us back on track and the if, if we don't do it labor will get in and they'll ruin it all again so you've got a very clear plot you've got the characters and you've got the conflict which is we're saying one thing and labor is saying the other um and i think just having the basics of storytelling nailed down and sticking to it um can be very very effective indeed benedict thanks very much for <laughs> making the way here it's been a late night session this evening so i appreciate you coming over after work thanks for having me it's been great that's all from Government versus the Robots this week. We're hoping to take a closer look at artificial intelligence in the near future and maybe even talk about blockchain. If you've liked what you heard, please do subscribe, tell your friends about the podcast or follow us on Twitter at govt underscore vs underscore robots. My thanks as ever to Cecilia Armstrong for her help editing and producing this podcast and we look forward to talking to you again next time. 